Well, we're going through the Psalms when, uh, when Dwight's uh, away, and so we're picking it back up at Psalm 20. As Paul read for me this morning, I call this one, In Your Day of Trouble. And uh, we are certainly going through some days of trouble. And at least we're seeing that going on in the world, right? But let's go ahead and read the whole psalm. And um, just nine verses. Um, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob defend you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and strengthen you out of Zion. And may he remember all your offerings and accept your burnt sacrifice, Selah. And may he grant you according to your heart's desire and fulfill all your purpose. We will rejoice in your salvation. In the name of our God, we will set up our banners. And may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. And he will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Some trust in chariots, and some trust in their horses. But we will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen, but we have risen and stand upright. Save, Lord, and may the King answer us when we call. You know, uh, again, we're going through some days of trouble right now. Um, And each one of us will likely, if we haven't already, and aren't in the middle of it now, we'll have our own days of trouble. And Psalm 20 kind of gives us a few things, who to call upon, how to respond, and uh, where to put our trust, and the one thing that we must do. So we know from verse 1, Psalm is written, the writer is David. And also there are some clues in this psalm as to when it was written. Um, doesn't come right out and say anything about it, but um, first of all, he talks about, makes mention of the sanctuary. He makes mention also of Zion, and he makes mention of offerings and burnt sacrifices. And so what we're going to do this morning is try and establish the context of this by turning to Second Samuel, and we're going to spend a bit of time there going through, really, seven chapters, verses, or the chapter... 1 through 7, you can turn to chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, but chapter 1 is David, now Saul, had had been slain in battle, and chapter 1 is David mourning for Saul and for Jonathan, who was his best friend, and um, he learns of Saul's death. But in chapter 2, I'm just going to read the first seven verses. Um, It had happened after this that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to any any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up, David. And David said, Where shall I go? And he said, To Hebron. And so David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam, the Jezreelitess, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite, And David brought up the men who were with him, every man with his household, so that they dwelt in the cities of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. And they told David, saying, The men of Jabesh-Gilead were the ones who buried Saul. And so David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, Well, you are blessed of the Lord, for you have shown this kindness to your Lord, to Saul, and to have buried him. And now may the Lord show kindness and truth to you. And I also will repay you this kindness because you have done this thing. Now, therefore, let your hands be strengthened and be valiant. For your master Saul is dead. And also the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. David learned of Saul's death. And the first thing he asks for in these verses in chapter 2 is, uh, he asks if, if he could live in any of the cities. He goes before the Lord. I've been doing these battles. I've been running from Saul. Lord, should I live in any of these cities in Judah? And uh, the Lord says, yes. And he says, well, which one do you want me to live in? And he says, well, let's go to Hebron and uh, go up to Hebron. Notice he says, we'll go up to, and we'll talk about this a little bit. Back in those days, all the cities were built on hills. You know, so you'd have a, a view. You'd have a defense. You'd have uh, the ability to overlook um, and see, uh, keep a keep a vigil over guard 
so that you could see who's coming. As far as God was concerned, now David was already anointed by Samuel to be king, and, uh, but now the men of Judah also recognize and make David their king. But Saul's general, um, verse, you know, going through chapter 2 up to 5, Saul's general, his name is Abner, and Abner and, uh, immediately wants to keep Saul's family in power because that's where Abner's power is. And so uh, chapter, second part of chapter 2 all the way up to 5, Abner and the house of Saul were at war with the house of David. And David's um, secretary of defense was Joab. So David grew stronger, and Abner grew weaker. But these guys were men of war. And so at one point, there's a little challenge between Abner and Joab. And as it turns out, Joab ends up killing and murdering uh, Abner. And David mourned for Abner, because he honored the Lord's anointed with Saul. And he honored Abner, who served Saul. Um, but these were men of war, men of blood. And uh, even though Abner had approached David for peace, Joab and Abner got together and it didn't end well. In chapter 5, we go through verses 1 through 5 to see a little bit how David is, is settling in as king. In just the first five verses... Then all the tribes of Israel came to David, all the tribes, at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one that led Israel out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, You shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. Well, David was 33 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. Uh, in Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years, six months. And then once he got to Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. All the elders, all the tribes of Israel now make a covenant with David and anoint him king of Israel. Now, this is some 3,000 years ago, and like I said, in those days, cities were built on hills, and uh, the Romans came along. We don't see it that way today. If you've been to Israel, you notice you know, there are mountains, certainly. And there's that uh, whole range of mountains to the, to the uh, west of the Dead Sea, which is the Judean mountains, the Judean hills. And up in there, just to the east of, I'm sorry, just to the west of En Gedi would be Hebron. Um, but uh, the Romans raised uh, Jerusalem back in the first century. AD. And what that means is when they conquered a city and conquered their enemies, they would take that city right down to the rock and even dig down some below it to make sure that everybody knew that nothing remained of what was there. And so this city that we're going to talk about, where Jerusalem was, uh, was a different than it is today. It was a much higher, much steeper cliffs going up to it and uh, much deeper valleys next to it. And if you've been to Israel, um, if not, you get there and you see the city of David they've been excavating now for, for decades, and they continue to do so, and they're finding incredible things, even uh, archaeological finds that simply prove that this is the city of David. But when we were there at the one time, there's the Valley of Jezreel. No, not the Valley of Jezreel. I can't think of it right now off the top of my head. But anyways, it's right next to the city of David. It wasn't that far from climbing up to the Temple Mount. Well, back in the day, it was much lower and, and uh, Jerusalem was much higher because we would go down below the streets and everything and we'd see way down there are these huge pillars and you could hear water down there going. And here's these gates that are way below the streets that are there now. And so clearly everything was pushed off of the top of the mountain and pushed into the valleys. So back then, though, um, David... Until David became king, it was, uh, Jerusalem was called Jebus. It was the city of the Jebusites. And now he lives in Hebron, uh, Bethlehem, where David grew up, was about four or five miles from Jebus. From, and remember, that wasn't Jerusalem at the time. Back in Abraham's day, it was Salem. And the king of Salem came out to meet him. Melchizedek came out from Salem. 
and uh, right next to Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah is where Abraham offered up Isaac, and the Lord held his hand, and he came down with Isaac, but he provided himself a lamb. There's a picture of our Lord and Savior. And also that is where, um, uh, you know, the Jebusites now had their city, and it was called the city of the Jebusites, or Jebus. So that, uh, Bethlehem is about four or five miles away. Now Hebron's another 10 miles past that. So where he's living now is in Hebron. All these cities are built on hills. In First Chronicles 11, you don't have to turn there, but Jebus is called a castle. And when David talks about uh, the city of the Jebusites, now he's going to call it a stronghold or a high tower. Um, all his childhood, just four or five miles away, he would have seen this city called a castle up high on this area. He would have known about this city. Even 10 miles away past that, now just like you and I would look, go down to, to Waverly Beach, you can look all the way across to Oshkosh. It's how many miles away, but you can see it. And this is up on the hills, and here's this castle. And it was called Zion. Now, Zion simply means a parched place or a, a sunny place a place that the sun shines. And if you uh, go there today, you'll see the city of David is on the south south uh, east side of Mount Moriah. And here's that city of uh, Jebus now, high up and on the sunny side, right in view of Bethlehem, right in view of Hebron. All this to say, this puts us in context for the psalm and also for what happens next. If you want to go chapter 5, we're going to do of... Um, Second Samuel, we'll read 6 through 9. And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land. Now they were Canaanites, and when they had come into the land, they were to remove all the Canaanites, but nobody could take care of Jebus. It was, this, it was impenetrable. It was up high, and nobody could get to it. So the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come up here, but the blind and the lame we have here are going to repel you thinking David cannot come here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by the way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, even the lame and the blind, who are hated by David's soul, but shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And then David dwelt in the stronghold, called it the city of David, and he began to build all around it, all the way out to Milo and inward. And so he began to build up the surrounding area. This is where David takes Zion. Now, this is also the very first time in the Bible the word Zion is used. This is the name of that city, the name of that stronghold. If you, uh, you know, remember, David inquired of the Lord before he should go and live in any city or any city at all in Judah. And then he inquires of the Lord, which one? The Lord sends him to Hebron. So he sits there and looks at Jebus. And uh, now David, if you look at verses 10, um, keep in mind, too, here he is in Bethlehem growing up as a child, as a shepherd boy. And they used to go way out in the fields, many miles you know, away from their farm, if you will, from Jesse's house when David was growing up. And so it wouldn't be a stretch to say that David knew this Jebusite city standing high over everybody for his whole childhood. And he had to water a sheep. He knew where the water was. He knew where he could, uh, you know, he just knew everything about it. Growing up as a child, you know everything there is around you. I grew up in the country around a bunch of gravel pits. I knew every gravel pit in and out, where the cops used to go out there and practice shooting, you know. And a uh, good place to practice in a gravel pit, right? So um, anyway, in verse uh you know, David continues to inquire of the Lord in verses 12 through tw uh, 10 through 12. He goes on and says, So David went on to become great, and the Lord of the hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David, and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. And so the Lord continues to bless David. He inquires of the Lord, and from here on out through the chapter, um, in verse 12, the thing that's most significant here is David never thought much of himself. You know, isn't David the one that says, Who am I, Lord, that you'd look at me for anything? I'm just a shepherd boy. But now he finally knows. The, the men of Judah came and made him king. 
Samuel had anointed him king. And now all of Israel came and says, yes, you're our king. You're the shepherd of all Israel. Well, it wasn't until now that David actually says and knows that the God of Israel had established him. Now he takes it to heart. Now he knows. And that's the humility, really, of David. And, um, you know, but he has a desire. God builds him a house. Um, he continues to inquire of the Lord through the rest of chapter 6 and uh, goes on to defeat the Philistines, inquiring of the Lord when to go up against them, when to go around them. But now in, in chapter 6, I want to just kind of read through it. David lives now in Zion, lives in the city of David, lives in the stronghold. And um, in chapter 6 through 7, it's best just to read it. So again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by uh, the name of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill of Uzzah and Ahio. And the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart, and they brought it out to the house of Abinadab, brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on a hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Well, then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir and wood and harps and stringed instruments on tambourines and on sistrums. I wonder what that is. And on cymbals. And they came to Nacon's threshing floor. Well, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took a hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Well, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Well, David became angry of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez-Uzzah to this day. And now David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? And so David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained at the house of Obed-Edom and Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told the king, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. And so David went and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. But as it was so, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, then he sacrificed an oxen and fatted sheep. Then the, the David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the shout of trumpet. Now as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through the window, and he saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord. And then she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. Not to be missed, you know, when he was bringing it, they'd go six paces, make a sacrifice. When the sacrifice is done, they'd go six paces and make a sacrifice. And so he was obviously aware of how serious and how holy the Lord was that Uzzah, who was not a priest, reached out and touched the ark and was killed. God is holy. But they, uh, in verse 18, when David had finished offerings and burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And then he distributed among the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, everyone a loaf of bread and a piece of meat and a cake of raisins. And so all the people departed, everyone to his house. Then David returned to bless his household. Well, then this Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David. And how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself in the eyes of all the maids and his servants, as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And so David said to Michael, you know, because he was doing it as unto the Lord, it was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel, therefore I play music before the Lord. Now I'll even be more undignified than this. 
and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. Therefore, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's just a side story with a lesson all of its own, isn't it? Um, We have a, um, you know, it's so important for us to walk before the Lord and not walk before men. You know, why why should we care what men think other than not to misrepresent the Lord? Um, But but certainly we want to do all that we do as unto the Lord and before the Lord without regard to what men think or say even if they're members of our own family who want to despise us in their own eyes, who want to mock us and call us fools for how we're honoring the Lord. Simple lesson from Michael, who is Saul's daughter. And in in chapter 7, where it gets to where we're talking about, maybe Psalm 20 here, a little bit more. Now it came to pass, when the king was dwelling in the house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside a tent and curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Well, go do all that's in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, I have never spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded, whom I commanded you to shepherd my people, Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel, and I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made uh, you great in name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in the place of their own. And move no more, nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. And since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people, Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies, also the Lord tells me, tells you that he will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you and will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of man. But my mercy shall not depart from him, and as I took it from Saul, but whom I removed from before you. Um, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever, before your throne shall be before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. How does David respond? Well, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And who knows how long that was before he'd raise a voice and say, Who am I, O Lord? What is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come in this manner of man, O Lord God. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. Your word, for your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant known them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, nor is there any God besides you. According to all that we have heard with our ears, And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on the earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt and the nations and their gods. For you made your people Israel and your very own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever, as you have said. 
And so let your name be magnified forever. Let the Lord of hosts, or said the Lord of hosts, the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God. Your words are true, and you have promised this goodness to your servant. Therefore let it please you to bless the the house of your servant, that it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. You know, this reminds me uh, many years ago when uh, uh, Chuck Smith would be taking tours to Israel. And, you know, Israel took notice. Here's this uh, American pastor who is uh, treating Israel, you know, differently than all the rest. You know, so many pulpits throughout Europe and even America would preach that Israel was replaced and they're nothing. The people that came in the land were just a bunch of terrorists. You know, and, and uh, that was the pre- predominant feeling of most pulpits around the world, Christian pulpits, towards Israel. And when Chuck had studied prophecy and when he had seen that the Lord, and, you know, knew that the Lord had, had brought Israel into the land and it was a fulfillment of what he was going to do in the last days, um, Chuck was taking tours, lots of them. Well, these guys took notice of that. I mean, here's some, if nothing else, revenue coming. Well, to the point where at one point, if I recall right, he, he was to speak before the Knesset, which would be the Congress in Israel. And he gets in there and these guys are going, okay, what's this guy going to say? And he says, no, this isn't Jerusalem. This is not Washington, D.C. This is Jerusalem, D.C. And they go, what? And he says, David's capital, David's city. And they, they were stunned. Um, it's true to this day. Um, God is with David. The God of Israel establishes David as king of his people. But David has a desire to build a house in Zion for his name to dwell. The Lord God establishes David a throne before him forever, where the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the seed of David, rules and reigns. And in Psalm 2, he will judge the nations on how they treated Israel. The Lord reigns in Zion. The Lord also reigns in all the heaven and all the earth because there is no house that can contain God. If we go back to Psalm 20, the name of the Lord is Jehovah. And we've studied that. Yahweh, Jehovah, that's his name. Elohim is God. Um, But when he's called by his name, he's called the Lord, the Lord God, Elohim, or uh, Jehovah, Elohim. So may the Lord answer you in your day of trouble. So if we wanted to see a little bit more here, it says, may the name of the God of Jacob defend you. Why does David call him the God of Jacob, not the God of Israel, not the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Well, we see in reading through the first part of Samuel that Saul was the king, David was doing his, but Saul was chasing him down. There were those that followed David. There were those that followed Saul. And it was a divided country. It was divided, just like the 12 tribes of Israel were 12 tribes, 12 separate tribes. And Judah was one of those. And they were divided. Tribes divided against tribes. That was Israel. Um, If you look at 2 Samuel 23, a few chapters after there, maybe I'll just read it for you. It's just one verse. In verse 1 it says, Now these are the last words of David. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. Thus says the man raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, he says, and the sweet psalmist of Israel. You know, David wrote these psalms, many of them. But here's he calling himself, you know, raised up by who? By the God of Jacob. Because Israel was divided. Um, Micah 4, 1 through 8. I think they got them up there for you. If uh, You can probably already start turning to John <laughs> as we go. But Micah 4, 8, keep your finger. And um, now it shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and the people shall flow into it. Many shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, he says. And he will teach us his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge between many peoples, and rebuke strong nations afar off. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and the spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against a nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Praise the Lord. But every one shall sit under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the people watch, walk each according to the name of his God, but we will walk in the manner of the Lord of our God forever and ever. And in that day, says the Lord, I will assemble the lame, I will gather the outcast and those whom I have afflicted. I will make the lame a remnant and an outcast of a strong nation. So the Lord will reign over them in the Mount Zion, in Mount Zion. And from now on, even forever, and you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, you shall, uh, to you it shall come. Even the former dominion shall come, the kingdom of the daughter of Jerusalem. Notice how David refers to the God of Jacob and how now he's going back. Israel, uh, you know, he was, Jacob was one son. He had a brother, Isaac. Abraham and Keturah had, uh, had Keturah uh, with other descendants. Jacob, or I should say uh, Abraham and Sarah had Isaac. The promise was through Isaac. Isaac had uh, Jacob and Esau, but the promise was through Jacob. Now Jacob, who was a trickster, um, wrestled with God. He became Israel. The one who wrestled with God and prevailed. Well, no more tricks, basically, was the outcome of that wrestling. And now he's named Israel by God, who wrestled with God and prevailed. Um, We're dealing with God here now, Jacob. Your name is going to be Israel. How did he prevail? If you look at the story in Genesis uh, 32, you don't have to turn there, but he hung on, grabbed onto the heel of the Lord who was wrestling with him until he knew his name, and he wouldn't let go and says, bless me, and, and, and I want to know your name. And so the Lord did bless him, and so he was renamed Israel. But David goes back to call him the God of Jacob because Israel was divided, and really it is wisdom that... Uh, you know, he would do so. And judges, everyone did what was right in their own sight. All the tribes of Israel, basically everyone did what was right in their own sight. They didn't have a king yet. So they get a king, they get King Saul, and Saul does what's right in his own sight and doesn't obey the commands of the Lord, brings back Agag, the king of the Amalekites, who he was supposed to slay. And turns out, because he didn't, years later, the Agagites continued on and became a snare and a trouble to Israel. If only he would obey, but he didn't. But therefore God anoints David to be king. But Israel's divided. And because they look to men rather than looking each one to God. So he says, no, the God of Jacob, all of our fathers, not just the the 12 tribes. Certainly he became Israel and became the 12 tribes of Israel. And I hope you see my point. You know, Paul warns the Galatians not to bite and devour one another. Um, James says the reason there's quarrels among you is because you, you lust and covet and envy one another and you have not because you ask not because you ask amiss. Jesus said a house that's divided against itself will not stand. And David, by the wisdom that points to the God of Jacob, not the God of all these tribes, as if we're all in different pieces and parts. You know, and think about in, back in verse 1 of Psalm 20, Think about who he's defending us from. You know, it should never have to be that he's defending us from another brother or sister in the Lord or another believer. Yet, too often that's the case. Satan seeks to divide believers, seeks to divide marriages. On Wednesday nights we're going through Genesis and we're in 2 and 3 and that's exactly what's going on. There's Satan, his very first lies, his very first deception, seeking to divide seeking to challenge what God is saying and seeking to divide the the man and the woman. 
And so, you know, who's the one that's seeking to destroy? What are his tools? Lies, accusations. What's our defense in Psalm 1? Well, the name of the God of Jacob. For us, the name of Jesus. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. That's who we have as a common. The God of Jacob for, for David and those nation, uh, tribes that were coming together. And for us, we have the name of Jesus that unites us. And the Jesus that's of the Bible, not the Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints, which is not of the Bible. Not the Jesus that Oprah preaches and says is just the Christ consciousness that's in us. It's the Jesus of the Bible, the whole counsel of God. And so what does he defend? Um, we have, through that name, we have direct access um, to our God through the name of Jesus. And what, that's what he's talking about. May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. And may the name of the Lord God of Jacob defend you. And says, may he send you help from the sanctuary. You know, again, that word defend is the same word as tower. Same word as that Jebusite city was called. That same word of being high, exalted, inaccessibly high, like the Jebusite city was. That's who David says, Lord, is defending us. He lifts us up too high to be reached by anybody, too high for capture. That word defend is what that means in verse 1. But in verse 2, he says he's going to send help. That word help is aid. But notice he says from the sanctuary. The word sanctuary there is kodesh. And equals basically the help from the holy. And um, the holy place. Help from God rather than anything of ourselves or anything in this world. The maker of everything can help with anything. It's a good one to put on your bumper sticker and put on your refrigerator, isn't it? The maker of everything can help with anything. But the word help from the holy, if you want to go to John, that is so true for us. In fact, it's critical for us that we get our help from the holy, from the sanctuary, that holy place. John 14. And I'm just going to read a few of these passages. And I think hopefully you'll see We're going to read verses 15 through 18. So Jesus says to them, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray to the Father, and he will give you another helper. And he may may abide with you forever. And this is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. And at that time, Jesus had not risen to be with the Father, and so the Holy Spirit could not dwell within us. But now after the resurrection, it, he does. Um, when, we, when we give our lives to the Lord, when we trust him in the finished work on the cross, that is when the Holy Spirit dwells within us. We are born again by the Spirit. In verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. A little while longer and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live here. You will live also. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And I'm reading past my verses. Verses 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father I will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all the things that I said. Again, he calls him the Helper our help from the holy. In chapter 15, verse 26, just the next page. He says, But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from my Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. And in chapter 16, it's just 5 through 15, says, But now I go away to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, Where are you going? Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you, it is for your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will convict the world of sin, and he will convict the world of righteousness, and he will convict the world of judgment 
of sin because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, praise the Lord, and still I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, and he will not speak on his own authority, but he, whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you the things to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of what is mine and declare to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore I say that he will take of mine and declare it unto you. Many people maybe get sidetracked, focusing only on the Holy Spirit. And many times the prevailing thing that goes on in, a, in a, any given Sunday morning is just the gifts of the Holy Spirit run amok. And yet the one thing that he says Moreover than anything else, the nature of the Holy Spirit is to get out of the way and point to the Lord so that we seek him. Remember what Jesus or what the Father said on, on, uh, on, uh, when Jesus was uh, on Mount of Transfiguration. He says, this is my beloved Son. Hear him. The Father points to the Son for us. The Holy Spirit points to the Son for us. And that helper, what we need help with more than anything else is knowing the truth and speaking the, the truth, um, testifying of Jesus Christ, and testifying of the cross. And what does he say? He says, this is going to convict the world of sin, and it's going to convict the world of righteousness, and it's going to convict the world of judgment, the judgment that was poured out on Jesus Christ. And that to, to give yourself to him, now that, that the wages of our sin is death. Well, he took that death on himself. He paid our wages. Um, people are in trouble in this world. And they're in trouble on their own. The world's in trouble. And they need help. They need help. They need the truth of Jesus Christ. They need the truth of the cross. They need the truth of that judgment that he took for us and for them. You know, he, they need to know that he's the way, the truth, and the life. Um, Hebrews 13, 1 through 6. We also need help living the Christian life. When David talks about, me, your help come from the Holy, well, we need help from the Holy Spirit just to live the life that God's called us to live. In verse 1 through 6, he says, in concluding um, with the closing the letter to the Hebrews, let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers. By for so doing, some have entertained angels. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are in the, in the body also. You know, he's drawing attention to those that could use our help, right? And going to see those that are in prison, isn't that something Jesus talked about was evidence of a believer? Um, when he, he says, you know, we know you, Lord. Well, did you ever, you know, visit me while I was in prison? If you did the least of these, my brethren, he says, you know, he says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. And so let your conduct be without covetousness, and be content with such things as you have. And he says, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you, so that we may boldly say this, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what any man can do to me. We talked about that earlier. You know, then he goes on back in Psalms, uh, Psalm 20, in verse 2. We got to verse 2. He says, Strengthen. May the Lord strengthen you from, you know, Zion, out of Zion. And what comes out of Zion? Well, that's his judgments. That's his stronghold. That's where the holy is, where he's got the ark, where David brought the ark, and he's saying, may God strengthen you, knowing that the God of Israel, the God of Jacob, and our Lord and Savior, um, comes from that holy heaven, comes from, from the Zion that is the new heavens, and uh, where God is... Um, dwelling from heaven, but that, you know, that's what we need help from. Where was I? Strength. 
Strength and support means sustain, stay, establish, and comfort. And so where is our strength? Well, by abiding in God's presence is what he's talking about in verse 2. Um, and like David, Zion. And that's what we need strength for, you know, to overcome sin. If you want to turn to 1 Corinthians, we got some time yet. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 56. And we'll flip through a few of these kind of quickly. Um, Verses 1556 says, uh, The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. In 1 Peter 5.10, he also says, May the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you have suffered a little while, perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you, you know, we need his strength to overcome sin. But what's the power of sin? Well, the power of sin is death, because the soul that sins shall die. You know, I love the way Ray Comfort puts it. What is death? You'll come right up to anybody. What is death? You can ask anybody and see what their answers are. Well, you tell them, no, death is wages. That's the wages for your sin. And so that really then puts the light, puts the light on the cross doesn't it? Because that's where the death that took away our sins took place. And so in First Peter, he's talking about this strength, but he's talking about what is going to be that strength. Well, it's God's grace, he says, to perfect, to establish, to strengthen, to settle, because we do it all in our strength, our own strength. Well, no, it's in his strength, and that strength we have by the grace of God. And so he can say, who gets all the glory? Well, that God of grace we need strength to do the things that only he can do, things that are beyond our own strength. If you want to turn to 2 Corinthians 2, or uh, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 12, verses 1 through 10, to be able to do things that are beyond our own strength, well, there's a way to do that. It's doubtless, Paul is talking about you know, defending Dwight's been through, or well, I guess he's not through this point, so I'm jumping ahead on, on his Sunday mornings a little bit. But uh, Paul was being uh, challenged by these guys that were coming to the Corinthians and saying, ah, who's Paul? You know, what's he ever done or seen? And so he's reduced to this foolishness, he calls it, of defending himself as, you know, how the Lord has used him. And he goes in chapter 11 of suffering and all, and he says he's reluctant to boast about anything. And so he won't even call it himself, but he's talking about himself in the third person, chapter 12. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast, and I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord that he had. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, and whether out of the body, I don't know. Well, God knows. Such a one was caught up in the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether the body or out, I do not know, but God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard expressible, inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. You know, it's interesting. We, we get caught up to heaven and we want to tell everybody what we saw. He doesn't say anything about what he saw there, like Ezekiel did, or Daniel, or in the Revelation, John. He says, things I heard, things that were said that are just, are just too much and would be actually unlawful for any man to speak what he heard. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in what? My infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak, of, uh, for I will speak the truth. But if I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me, nothing special. Paul never thought himself to be anything special just the message he brought and the power that came with it. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he says, No, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in what? In weakness. How are we going to do those things that we can't do? Well, because we can't. We're weak. We don't have the strength to do it. And God's going to do it through us. And he did do it through Paul. And there's no way that he could take the glory and the credit of it for himself. 
because here's this thorn in his flesh going, what in the world is this thing? Why do I have to deal with this, Lord? Everybody's going to know that I'm just a guy that's suffering like this when I'm healing other people. And when the Lord had healed so many, and here I am stuck. Well, therefore, most gladly, I would rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I will take pleasure in infirmities. Boy, put that one on your refrigerator. In reproaches, in needs, in persecution, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Verse 3, back in Psalms. He says, remember the offerings and sacrifices. And in one sense, we know that God sees all that we do and all that we give. He knows the time we spend. He knows the sacrifices we make. And even to the giving of a glass of water, we will not lose um, our reward, giving to the glass of water in his name. So what are these burnt sacrifices? Well, when they would bring their bulls and their goats and their grains for a burnt offering, it would be without spot, without blemish. It was the first of their flocks, the best of their flocks. Then they would hand it over to the priests, and they would stand back and watch it go up and smoke. They couldn't say, well, let's apply that, and, and can we please use that to build this wing of the church? And can we please, you know, we want to have our hands deciding where what we give is going. No, as unto the Lord. And they sat there and they watched it go up and smoke. They had no control of how it was going to be used. And, um, but this is where David says, Selah. Says, um, I always go to the wrong page here. Says, um, may he remember all of your offerings and accept what's acceptable to God. And the word Selah, you've often heard, just means pause or think about it. It actually means lift up, exalt this up, and start looking at it. You know, pause on that, lift it up and keep that in front of you for a little while. And so, you know, keeping the offerings that he remembers our offerings and keeping the fact that he accepts our sacrifice. And this is why we do communion, isn't it, Lord? In remembrance of what he did and so that we remember that he's the one keeping it in front of us, con you know, considering that he was the one that paid the price paid the wages for our sins. You know, David, get, David said to God, who am I that you do any of this for me? David saw how God had blessed him, and he says to anybody that would come to God, he's saying, you know, may God remember your offerings. Um, anybody who would come, who would bring their sin, bring their transgressions, someone that is all too aware of their own sin, and their own need for forgiveness and cleansing. Not just doing religion, not just bringing the lamb and the bull begrudgingly and showing up and, and oh, there they go passing the plate again and you just, you know, everything is a grunt and a groan as far as your, your faith and your walk with the Lord goes. On, you know, instead of that, it's, you know, because we know we're forgiven and, and we do what he's called us to do out of a desire. And may he grant us that to remember the offerings to remember that sacrifice. God is love and desires that none would perish, but that all will come to repentance. God is just, and those wages must be paid. Jesus paid those wages, and, uh, you know, they must be paid. This is where we must put our faith, not in any of these sacrifices or offerings that we do. That's just our service. That's just our worship. That's just our gratitude. And uh, Romans 12 goes into that. You know, what's our what's our spiritual worship? In verse four, well, he goes just a little bit in verse three. You know, uh, David's desire was to build God a house. God's purpose for David was to build him a house. Many times, it's true for us. We desire so much to do for God, and yet His purpose for us is to remember and know how much He's established us in Jesus Christ, and also His seed came from David, who is the Messiah. But he just desires to bring us back, and his purpose for us was to bring us back, reconcile us back through Jesus into that relationship with him. So verse 4, Psalm 20, Jesus has satisfied our heart's desire and given us a purpose by reconciling us back into fellowship with our maker. And he says, what's, 
our response, what are we going to do? Well, we're going to rejoice. You think of these things, you know, and I, again, I'm not one of these guys that maybe jumps up and down out loud and throwing my hands up in the air. I kind of do that on the inside. Usually ends up being tears, you know, but it's, it's a, uh, there's nothing wrong with jumping up and down if that's what the Lord's got you doing. And wait till after service. Otherwise it's a distraction and we just don't get anything done. But we will rejoice in your salvation. And in the name of our God, we will set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. You know, God's blessing his hearers in this psalm that he would fulfill our petitions. How can we respond to this except with rejoicing? And, you know, what's his petitions? What's our petitions? You know, he asked the Lord, where should I live? Should I go up against these Jebusites? You know, should I go up against these Philistines? And the Lord, can I build you a house? That's what, you know, these, these become our, our petitions, don't they? We want to build the house of the Lord by witnessing to others and draw people to him and lift him up. We want to witness to our fam- family and friends and those that are in our lives because now we know in verse 6. Now we know that the Lord saves his anointed. David speaking of his, himself, the one that he was anointed king. But that's true for us, right? He's given us his Holy Spirit. Jesus died for us. And he's given us things to do. He's given us uh, simply to turn to him and worship. But we know him and we're anointed to do the things, to be in worship and to, to give him praise and glory and to be thankful and to rejoice. In God's name, we hope someone will see and maybe think about God. You know, we might just be putting a fish on our bumper, you know, or putting uh, something in our window or, or at the end of our emails we send, we got a little Bible verse, no matter who sees it. And uh, because that's our desire. Our desire is to build God's house up. And that's David's desire, to build up the house. And then where to go, what to do. It's our desire to know what God would have us to do. And may he grant that to us, like David says, to fulfill all our petitions. And because we know. And what do we know? Well, the Lord saves. The Lord answers from his holy heaven. His saving strength because of our Savior who ascended to heaven, sits at God's right hand. All glory and honor and power be to his name. And in verse 7, then there's the other guys. <laughs> Some trust in chariots. This is, you know, we've put our trust in the Lord. But some trust in chariots. You can have as many tanks and jets and nukes as you want, but if God's not with you, what does he say? He says, you're going to bow down. You're going to fall. We're in the last days when God is calling out to any and all that would be saved. And how do we know we're in the last days? Well, because all the tanks and all the jets and all the nukes are in all the hands of the guys that he said they were going to be in in Ezekiel 38 and 39. We get all impressed with the latest technology and the power and the weapons available these days. you know. But when they come against Israel, God's going to turn them back. And you can read it, Ezekiel 38, 39. A great cloud they're going to bring, it says. And we're looking at the news right now, and we do updates here, and Dwight talks about it often and brings it before our eyes, and that's good. And um, But right now, Russia is known to be Gog and Magog and Tubal. There's a city in, in northern, north of Moscow. I, I can't remember. I looked up on a map years ago. It's called Tubalsk. So when he says these nations from the north, he's talking about Ezekiel 38 and 39. He's talking about Russia. Right now, Russia is telling Israel, don't go into Syria anymore. I don't care what you think Iran is bringing to Hezbollah and what they're going to do with it. You stay out. It's getting close. How soon? I mean, Israel's not going to sit around and let anybody start building a gun so big that they can kill them from right across the border. They're going to go into that country and they're going to take out that gun. They're going to take out the chemicals that they have. They're going to take out the, the missiles that Iran is bringing in. Now Russia, who is the big bear right there, doing all kinds of things, took Crimea. Now they're starting to take a little bit of the end of... of uh, um, Wow, now I am old. Ukraine, yes. 
How many times I saw that this morning when I was looking at the news. So, um, you know, but God is going to turn that all back on them. That whole cloud, all the tanks, all the jets, all the nukes, whatever they want to bring, that will be turned back on them. Many in our fellowship have family members in the military and the armed forces. And we truly do honor them and we truly do pray for them. And we truly do want them to know that we stand behind them. But there's something really big going on. You know, we want them to have the best weapons and the best technologies uh, so that they can defend our country, country. But there is something that's really big that's going on these days, bigger than all of us. The world is, you know, becoming full of fear. Our country is becoming weak with pandemics or politics. Those that trust in chariots and horses will bow and will fail. They'll fall. You know, maybe David's thinking of the Egyptians drowning in the Red Sea because chariots, there weren't a lot of chariots around. Um, there was back, Egypt had chariots, was known for it. All the kings around uh, Israel had chariots, but David didn't have any chariots. There's no mention of chariots for Saul. Um, later on, the kings of Israel had chariots and they're talked about, but maybe he's thinking of the Egyptians drowning in the Red Sea and how delivered his, how uh, God delivered his people. But if you want to turn to Joshua, uh, chapter 11, there's a lesson for us here. Just, just nine verses. Joshua had gone into the land and he was, he was taking the land from the Canaanites like God had commanded him to do so. And... Um, so in verses 1 through 9, And it came to pass, when Jabin, the king of Hazor, heard these things, that he sent to Jobab, the king of Maiden, to the king of Shimron, to the king of Ashaph, to the king of those who were from the north, in the mountains, in the plain, south, in Chinneroth, in the lowland, in the heights of Dor of the west, in the Canaanites, in the east, in the west, and the Amorite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, here we go again with the Jebusites, in the mountains, and the Hivite below Hermon, in the land of Mizpah, so that they went out, and all their armies with them. I mean, that's a lot. And uh, as many people as the sand that is on the seashore in multitude, in other words, too many to count, with very many horses and chariots. And when the kings had made Met together, they came and camped together at the waters of Meram to fight against Israel. But the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them, for tomorrow about this time I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots. Well, them are good weapons. We want those, Lord. We want to use them to fight our battles. Why did he say to do that? But look at Joshua. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Meron, and they attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them, and chased them to the greater Sidon, to the brook of Mizrathpath. Uh, I can mispronounce it just as good as any of you. <laughs> and, to the and to the valley of Mizpah, eastward, they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them, as the Lord had told them, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Why did God say to do that? Well, he wants, he wants Joshua to trust in his strength. He wants him to know that we're not going to trust in chariots. We're not going to trust in horses. We're going to trust in the Lord God of Israel. You know, why should we? Or what should we do? Finally, in our last part of Psalm 20, um, trust not in chariots and horses. We will remember the name of the Lord our God. They have bowed down and fallen. But what do we do? Well, we've risen. And we will rise with the Lord. You know what? We think about, as believers, oftentimes we, we, and we should, to an extent, like David said, who am I, Lord? And we kind of diminish ourselves or, or belittle ourselves. And rightly so. When, when, the, when the light shines upon us, the light of the word and the light of the gospel, you know, when we see our own sin, it puts me on my face. But when we see his grace, when we know his grace and how we're forgiven, when we see his mercy, well, that puts me on my feet. Now I can lift my head. 
Now I can look to the Lord. And now we have risen. And now we stand upright, he says. And in in verse 9, if you want to turn to Proverbs 18.10, verse 9 he says, Save, Lord. May the king answer us when we call. And in Proverbs 18.10, you know what it is that we do. The only thing we need to do in light of all of this, the most important thing we need to do, says the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous will run into it and are safe. Simple enough. The last verse I want you to turn to really is Jeremiah 33.3, and it's, there's a family living down in Oshkosh back in the 70s, going to church, and the mom remembered this verse and just could not, you know, here's the, you just got to appreciate, back in the 70s, this family that would spend their time in the Word and they'd remember the Word. You know, um, the one thing we must do call on our God and King. And he says, save, Lord. And I, we were at men's prayer meeting yesterday, and this uh, young man who grew up in Oshkosh, who is not now a young man anymore, um, but uh, he, he literally said this simple thing. He goes, Jeremiah 33, 3, we just went through that. What's it say? He says, call to me, and I will answer you, and I will show you great and mighty things which you do not know. My mom used to tell me that's God's phone number. Jeremiah 33.3. 3. What a sweet thing, isn't it? And, and so if you've got a pencil or a pen, you put that in your, that's God's phone number. Jeremiah 3.3. 3. You know, in your day of trouble, may the Lord answer you. The God of Jacob defend you. May the Holy Spirit help you and strengthen you. And may you put your trust in Jesus Christ the only acceptable sacrifice and our only salvation. Amen? So, Lord, thank you so much for all that you did for us. And, Lord, we just uh, want to praise you. We want to always remember and keep before us what you did for us. And, Lord, we just want to continue to give you the glory for every good thing that happens in our lives. And we just give you the rest of this day and all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>